tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 17. As you turn there, um, I almost decided to uh, skip over chapter 17. I preached on this text here before and to point you toward that tape and remind you of that. But then when I looked, I saw that that was four years ago. And uh, I thought about all the people that God has brought our way in that last four years and was reminded of how many people were not here at that time. And then I was reminded of how uh, you probably don't remember anything I said that night anyway. And so I was compelled uh, to work through this section again. In all seriousness, as I thought about it, there's no way to seriously work through this section like we are without this chapter. It's a high point. It is a key turning point in this issue of this struggle for leadership. Now we come to this one that the text has been pointing us to again and again this evening. Well, I'm going to read just simply verses 45 through 47 of 1 Samuel 17. And then we're going to work through most of this chapter very quickly. I want you to get a real bird's eye view of what's going, bird's eye view of what's going on in this chapter. I'll ask you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. 1 Samuel chapter 17 verses 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Let's pray. Lord, remind us of that very thing tonight. The battle is yours. Lord, remind us of that as we live, as we serve, as we risk for the sake of the kingdom. Remind us of that, Lord, as we read our Bibles. May we look to you May it always be on our hearts. The battle is yours, O Lord. The battle is yours, O Lord. Shape us and transform us according to that glorious truth this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. The story of David and Goliath has pointed a lot of people toward hell. Well at least in the way it's often been preached. In fact, in the way it's preached a lot of times, Goliath wins. Now, not in the sense that the the preacher says that Goliath actually wins the fight and wins this particular battle, but the focus often is on 
you having courage and you having the the self-reliance enough, the independence enough to do what's right. And at the end of the day, that's the spirit of Goliath. That's what drives Goliath. A trust in his own courage. A trust in his own strength. A trust in his self-reliance. What marks Goliath in this story is his declared independence from God. And his trust in his own power and his own might. And if the message that you come away from, from 1 Samuel 17 is, come on, be more courageous, trust in your courage, you can do it, buck up and do it. If that's what you walk away with, Goliath wins. The story is most often preached, taught, and read as though the Bible were all about us. It's most often taught, preached, and read as though the Bible were all about you and all about me. There is a tendency today to jump straight from the text to you. To jump straight from any text to your life. To jump straight from the text to the application to your life. And you read the Bible as if every verse is all about you. And when you do that, here's what you get. When you read that and you read this section in 1 Samuel 17 as though the Bible is all about you, then you see Goliath. And you say, Goliath is a problem. Well, Goliath must represent my problems. I've got a lot of problems. I've got financial problems. I've got relational problems. If you're a young person, your problem may be there's a bully at school picking on you. you got problems. Goliath represents your problems. And then you come to Israel. And you see this people cowering in fear in the presence of this one named Goliath. And you look to them and you say, I can't believe they're doing that. What in the world are they doing? Why would they do that? And then you come to David. And you think, well, David is my example. So what the text is teaching me is there are problems in my life. There are Goliaths in my life. And I've got to be a David. David had courage. I've got to have courage. David was clever. I've got to be clever. David was a dead eye with a slingshot. Not too many of us are too good with slingshots anymore, right? That doesn't work too well. I've got to be like David. I can slay the Goliaths in my life. That's how it goes. So often this story is told in just that way. And boy, there's tons of easy application that's made. This problem or that problem and this Goliath or that Goliath. Come on. The message is... Be a David. Have the courage. You can do it. Some even get fanciful and talk about uh, the sermon I heard about the five smooth stones that David uses. And they're the, the stone of Bible study and the stone of prayer and the stone of discipleship. Uh, that's just nutty. Nothing in the text says they're anything other than stones. You know how it goes. 
Here's what we've got to remember. We cannot forget who David is as we read 1 Samuel chapter 17. We can't read 1 Samuel 17 as if we haven't studied the rest of the book. And particularly, we can't read 1 Samuel 17 as if we have not seen what God has done in 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16 introduces us to David. And the very mark of the choosing of David to be king is he doesn't look like a king. And the warning is given. Man judges by outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. David is one who is after God's own heart. David may not look like much, but David is the one of God's choosing. David may be but a youth, but God has chosen him. And then as we read in 1 Samuel 16, we see that, that, that the prophet Samuel anoints David and the spirit rushes upon him. And so when we start piecing the pieces together, we have this boy named David who the Texas kept hinting at and now he's here. He's from Bethlehem and he's a shepherd. And now he's a shepherd who is a king. And he's a shepherd who's a king who's anointed by the Spirit of God. You can't forget that. That's what's going on. And just like in the Bible it keeps happening, those who are anointed by the Spirit of God, the Spirit is for battle, and they're thrust into battle. David is anointed as king. David is the one who has the Spirit. And the next thing you know, we find him in the midst of a battle with an enemy of God. Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. The next thing you know, he's thrust in the wilderness and the temptations, and it's the battle with the evil one. The book of Judges, which comes just prior, chronologically, we see God has been sending the Spirit for battle, that the victory may be won for his people. And so as we put those pieces together, we realize... There is something amazing going on with David. It sounds very familiar as we look toward Bethlehem and as we see a shepherd king who is anointed by the Spirit of God to be the king of the people of God, the leader that they've been longing for. They cried out, give us a king like the other nations. And it didn't work out at all. Saul is cowering in the presence of the enemies of God. But here is David. We can't read 1 Samuel 17 as if 1 Samuel 16 doesn't exist. We must remember David. But even more importantly than that, we cannot forget who Jesus is as we read this story. If we forget who Jesus is, we miss everything that matters. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus himself says, all of the scriptures testify of me. Moses, he says, wrote about him. 
All things were created for him, by him, and through him. All things, Paul says, will be summed up in Christ. Everything exists for the supremacy of Christ. And that includes when we read our Bibles. The Bible is a book about God that magnifies the person of Christ. If all of the scriptures testify of Christ, then we must first be asking the question, how does this text testify of Christ? And only then are we able to ask what it says to us. For if we take our Bibles and we keep skipping the gospel, we will miss everything that matters. You do realize that you can come to the Bible and just keep saying things that are true and lead someone to hell. You do realize that, don't, don't you? Let's say someone says, don't commit adultery. God doesn't want you to commit adultery. It's bad. Don't steal. God doesn't want you to steal. It's bad. Give. Give a lot. It's good. And we could go on and on and on. And by the way, everything I said is true. But everything I said was meant by God in the scripture to be understood in the context of Jesus and his gospel. And if it's all you say as if Jesus and the gospel doesn't exist, it is damning. When you come to 1 Samuel 17 and you act like Jesus and the gospel don't exist, it's going to lead you in the exact opposite direction that it's supposed to lead you. And the same is true with the rest of the Bible as well. You see, it's a totally different application that we draw when we come to 1 Samuel 17 asking ourselves, how does this story testify of Jesus? And only when I understand that can I apply it to me. Only when I understand that can I make the application to my own life. Only then am I capable of understanding what God has for me in 1 Samuel 17. I want you to see that with me tonight. In the first 10 verses, we are thrust from the scene where David is anointed the shepherd king of his people, the man from Bethlehem, and immediately we're thrust into a scene where there's an enemy of God named Goliath. And the point of this is, in the first ten verses, Goliath is not your problems. He is your problem. You see, if you come to Goliath and you just think that this is just sort of a representation of your problems in a generic sense, you've missed it. Goliath is not your problems. He is your problem. He's not a thing He's a person, and he wants to destroy and to kill and maim. And the key point in the text, the word that keeps you, you being used over and over in re- reference to him, is he defies God. He defies God. He's the enemy of God. 
his voice echoes from the garden. Look with me at the scene. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Socah, which belongs to Judah, and camped between Socah and Azekah and Ephesus Damon. Now notice here, the Philistines have some sense of the leadership crisis, and they see an opportune time to strike. And as we, under, as we read this text, we've got to understand something going on here. This text gives us tons of detail. When you're watching a movie and it passes a lot of time to get you up to speed and then it slows up and it starts giving you all of these nuances and detail, it's saying this is very important. That's exactly what's going on in this text. There is more detail about things like armament and things like that in this text than anywhere else in the Old Testament. It slows up on the cusp of this battle here as the Philistines are drawn up for battle. Look with me at verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. It's an ominous scene. There are the Philistines. There are the Israelites. There is the valley. And now what we see is that coming in the midst of that valley is an enemy of God, a champion of the Philistines that keeps showing up, challenging the Israelites. Look with me at verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion. Literally, the word means a man that stood between. A champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, which probably means he was nine feet, nine inches tall. Some people say nine feet, six inches tall. But he was huge. He was their champion. He was the man who stood between. It was very common for one group to send out a champion and challenge the champion of the other group. And that's exactly what we find Goliath, this giant of a man, doing. And immediately our mind should hearken back to chapter 16, verse 7. Do not look on the outward appearance. For God does not look on the outward appearance, He looks on the heart. And there is a man after God's own heart. By the way, there's a tall man in Israel. His name's Saul. That's why they made him king. But he's not ready for this challenge. We're immediately reminded that Goliath represents what everyone trusts in. He is a giant of a man. Verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze, which would have been very unusual on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. Literally, he was, he was armed with scale armor. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, probably about 126 pounds. Here he is, the enemy of God, challenging the people of God. He is a giant, and he's literally wearing scales. It is not by accident that that detail is given. He is the one that represents the evil one. He represents the serpent from the garden. He represents all that is opposed against God. And it's the reason why he keeps mocking. He keeps ridiculing. He keeps defying God. He keeps blaspheming God. Understand this? 
The picture is not Goliath represents your problems in a generic sense. That Goliath represents the bully at school. Goliath represents your financial challenges. That's not it. No, he is actively defying God. He is shaking his fist in the face of God. He represents someone all right. And it is the the slithering serpent in the garden. It is the evil one from the very beginning, that ancient serpent of old. He is the one with scales who stands and mocks the people of God. Verses 6 and 7. And he had on bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron or 15 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him. You see, the picture is being drawn here of this man who is invincible. If you draw a conclusion with your eyes, what you are peering upon, your ability to see is one who is invincible. Verse 8 and 9. He stood up and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. In other words, why have you come out for battle when no one will come out and fight? Am I not a Philistine? We are the declared enemy of your people. Aren't you Saul's people? Where is he? Where are you? Verse 9, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Verse 10, and the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The word defy means heap shame upon, taunt, scorn, insult, mock. Every time he steps out, it is with a direct challenge. It is with a mocking of the people of God and their God. It is with a taunting of the people of God and their God. He stands in the presence of their God and says, I defy you and your God. And where is the man who will do anything about it? You see, Goliath represents the enemy of God. And you better believe he's your problem. Satan hates you, wants to destroy you. And Goliath delighted in defying the people of God. But I also want you to see in verses 11 through 24, and we're just going to look at a couple of these verses, that Israel is not your inferior, they are your mirror. You see, when we read this in light of the whole Bible, we see that Goliath represents the enemy himself, the evil one, the serpent of old. And our tendency as we read is to look at Israel and say, look at them, how pathetic they are. They're hiding in a corner. Why don't they come out? Why don't they do this? But what we should see as we read this is Israel is us. 
That's who we're to identify with in the story. That's what we're like in and of ourselves. Look with me beginning at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They're in awe of Goliath. Saul is afraid. He's the king. He's the king people ask for. He's the tallest man among the Israelites. And he will not go out and fight. He's in terror of this enemy. The people, likewise, will not go out and fight. They do not say in light of God's promises, let us take on the challenge of the enemy. They say, look at him. He will destroy us. And you know what? They're right. He would. They had every reason to fear Goliath. Because he would destroy them in and of themselves. And let me tell you something really clearly. You have every reason to fear Satan. He will destroy you. If you think you're going to roll up your pants leg and do battle with the evil one and come out victorious, you are kidding yourself. If you take on Satan, you will be swept away apart from God's provision. You see, the people stood there and they realized they didn't have the resources to meet the challenge of the enemy of God. They didn't have the strength. They didn't have the power. They didn't have the might. They didn't have the ability. They did not have it. And all of a sudden in verse 12, the text points us toward David. We find out that David stayed back to tend the sheep, but that he often comes and brings supplies to the battlefield. And it points out that his brothers are on the battlefield, and it walks us through that whole scene. And then we flip over to verse 24. And we see in verse 24 exactly what we've been talking about, about how the people of Israel responded. Verse 24, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that is Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. In and of yourself, you and me, We are those who cower in the presence of the enemy. We are those who are hiding from the enemy, knowing that he will destroy us. You see, as we seek who to identify within this this text, it's clear. It's the Israelites. It's those cowering. It's those who realize, I can't defeat the enemy. The enemy will destroy me. What is to be created is a sense of dependence. If God doesn't act, I have no hope. Don't dare walk away from here thinking that the point of this David and Goliath narrative is that you would have more faith in your courage. That you would have more faith in your intellect. That you would have more faith in your ability. That you would have more faith in your strength that you would have more faith in your power. The very point that you're to walk away with is that in and of yourself, you are weak and you will be destroyed and you have every reason to tremble in the presence of the enemy. 
You see, we've got to quit looking at Israel in this text and shaking our heads saying, I can't believe they acted like that. You know who they act like? Us. They are not our inferior. They are our mirror and we are to see ourselves. And that leads us to David. We have such a tendency to get Goliath wrong and turn him into our problems instead of our problem. We have such a tendency to get Israel wrong and to think they're our inferior when in reality they're our mirror. But we also get David wrong. And we think that David is simply our example. When in the text he is presented as our only hope. That's where the text positions them. What hope is there for Israel? The enemy of God will wipe them away. They cower in fear. What is the hope? The hope is that the Lord would provide a champion to defeat the enemy of God on their behalf. Where's the hope? The hope is a man from Bethlehem who's a shepherd king, who is a Messiah. The hope is a spirit-anointed shepherd king from Bethlehem who will defeat the enemy on their behalf. The hope is that God would provide his anointed one who would do what they could never do, and that is defeat the enemy of God. And that's exactly what we see in David. We are to look to David and we are to see David and thank God for his provision of David. And David points us ahead to the greater than David, the one who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever. But look with me at the text in verse 25. And and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel and a king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. You get the idea. Saul says, listen, I'm not going to fight him, but I sure pay good for the one who will. I sure will pay nicely. I've got a great offer for the one who will take on his challenge. Verses 26 and 27. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David had probably never heard in his eardrums before the mocking of God. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who is this one outside the promises of the covenant? Who is this one who does not have the words of our God, who defies the God of Israel? Who is it, the living God, who would do such a thing? Verse 27. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Look with me at verse 28 through 30. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it, was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Now we have Eliab. You remember him. This is the brother that when he was brought out by outward appearance, Samuel said, that's the one, that's the king. And that's when God says, no, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. 
And there certainly seems to be some bitterness here between him and David. Some, some even mocking, some, some Goliath-type mocking toward David. And yet David is undeterred. Look with me beginning in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. Now we go from Eliab who says, Who are you? Go tend your few sheep, you little shepherd boy. And now Saul says, you can't do this. You are but a youth. And by the way, both things are true. He is a shepherd boy with a few sheep. And he is but a youth. The point of the text is not to vindicate David's natural ability. It is to do the exact opposite. It's to vindicate the choice and provision of God. You see, the issue with David is that he was anointed by the Spirit of God to be the king. He was the one chosen by God to defeat the enemy of God. Notice how David responds here as he speaks of his credentials beginning in verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David says, I've killed a lion, I've killed a bear, and I will kill this snake. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. You see, the whole chapter focuses not on David's strength, not on his courage, but on the fact that God has chosen him. God has provided him. He is the promised one that the Lord has raised up. He is the one anointed by the Spirit. That's the point here. Verse 38 and 39. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Now note this, Saul tries to to wrap him in the same sort of armor that Goliath has. He tries to get him to trust in the same sort of provision. But notice how David goes. David goes not trusting in the natural armor of a soldier. He goes as a shepherd. He is a shepherd king. He is dressed as a shepherd. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. These stones would have been the size of tennis balls. Now the shepherd king marches to meet the enemy of God. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. 
Now that phrase, it was used before. Somebody asked me, why is that phraseology used before? And I don't think I gave a very good answer. The reason it's used is because it is a reference to sort of boyish good looks. And, and it's an insult in this context. You're, you're ruddy and good looking. You, you are but a youth. In other words, you come to me, you don't even send a warrior to me, you send a boy. Look at that pretty little face. Verse 43, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the fields. In other words, humiliation. I will take your carcasses and spread them for the animals to enjoy. And that will be your humiliation. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Note again and again the point he's making here. It's not the story of a little guy who's a dead eye with a slingshot. It is the story of God's provision. David is the only one because he is anointed by the Spirit who remembers that the battle is the Lord's and he is the Lord's anointed. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or with spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David says, for all your shouting, for all your, 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 your yelling, uh, for all of your declarations to the Lord, the enemies of God may taunt the people of God when they forget the power of God. But in the end, he says, you will answer to God. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out the stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank in his forehead and he fell to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and he struck the Philistine and he killed him and there was no sword in the hand of David. Why does he need a sword? The shepherd king wants to do something else. He needs a sword. Verse 51, that David ran and stood over the Philistine and he took the sword and drew it out of its sheath and he killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now, that key word associated with David, I mean with Goliath, is defy, defy defy, mock God, defy God. And now we see in the midst of this battle, there's another key phrase and it's very important. Notice it. Verse 46, I will strike you down and cut off your head. Verse 49, he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. In other words, it crushed his head. Verse 51, killed him and cut off his head with it. Verse 54, David took the head of the Philistine. Verse 57, before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Now, whenever the text is making a point of something like that, that much, it's very significant. It is telling you, listen, the spirit anointed shepherd king from Bethlehem has cut off the head of the enemy of God. 
He has crushed the head of the enemy of God. He has crushed the head of the serpent. It is hearkening back all the way to that promise in the beginning of a seed born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And it's pointing ahead to the one who is the greater than David who would sit on the throne of David forever. It is absolutely key as we read this text to understand that David stands as the one who crushes the head of the serpent, who removes the head of the evil one. The head represents the seed of power and authority and it's removed the champion The enemy of God is rendered weak and powerless and his people flee. They were so bold and mocking, but now they are found running. It is so powerful. And note what happens to the people who are hiding over in a corner, trembling as the enemy of God mocked God and the people of God. Notice what happens instantly when God provides an anointed one to defeat the enemy of God. Verse 52. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shereim as far as Gath and Ekron and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Notice what happens. The people who were filled with terror, the people who were trembling, the people who realized that they could not defeat the enemy of God. When God provided his champion to defeat the enemy of God, in light of the victory that he's won, they rose up and they plundered the enemy because the victory had been won by the champion God had provided. It changed everything. Do you see that? Now, understand how twisted it is to come to this text and leave thinking that what it's telling you is just simply have enough courage to meet the enemies in your life. There's a real problem with that. And that's that you and I don't have that courage or that strength or that power. That's a defeated path. That's a path to depression. That's a path to spiritual devastation. You raise up your fist and you take on the evil one. It won't work. The text is saying the opposite. The text is saying you have no hope of defeating the evil one in and of yourself. You need me to provide a champion. And I've done it. I provide my anointed and he will defeat the enemy on your behalf. There is a champion In this text, his name is David. And we know that the ultimate champion that he points us to is the greater than David. His name is Jesus. One day, Peter would say, David is dead and buried, but Jesus is with us to this day. He is both Lord and Christ. He is the one that sits on the throne of David forever and ever. That is glorious. You see, what's at stake here? 
What's at stake here? If we just say, uh, listen, it's easy to just jump from the text to me and not think about Jesus and I'll just, it's easy for me. I, I just sort of enjoy thinking about the Goliath in my life and thinking about the courage that I have to meet the Goliath. What's at stake here? That's what we've got to come to grips with. What's at stake? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. You don't need the Bible to just jump straight to you and make some sort of generic application. You can use anything. Little Bo Peep lost his sheep. What have you lost? Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. You know, we all fall off the wall at times. How will we get put back together again? Well, I, I could go on and on and on. You don't need a Bible for that to make some sort of generic application. You need a Bible to tell you about Jesus. Every word is about Jesus. All the Bible helps us understand Jesus. The gospel is at the center of it all. You can't make application to your life apart from understanding how the text testifies to Jesus. This text is testifying to God's provision of a shepherd king anointed by the Spirit from Bethlehem. It's pointing us to Jesus. We are to see that we're to rest in the gospel. We're to rest in the gospel knowing that this text does talk about courage. But it's not the faith that we're to have in our own courage. It's the faith we're to have in the provision of God. And because of what he's done, yes, there's plenty of courage. But the courage is to the glory of Jesus, not the glory of our own courage. Oh, there's so much at stake. Not just in this text, but in all the Bible. So many ways that we handle these texts and we leave defeated and discouraged. And we sort of just heap some sort of bondage upon people again. Do better, be better, do better, be stronger, be more courageous. And the gospel keeps saying, forget about doing better. Abandon that pursuit and trust in what I have provided and I will raise you up. That is the only way you will ever be changed and sanctified. It is only when I defeat the enemy can you plunder the strong man in his own house. It's only in light of what I have done. It's all about Jesus. By the way, that's exactly what happened to the disciples. Have you ever thought about Paul? trained by the the, the greatest rabbi, memorized uh, most of, uh, certainly most of the Old Testament, committed to memory. And what did he do? He ran around killing Christians, overseeing the killing of Christians. All of that knowledge, all of that understanding. Why? Because he read the Old Testament as if there was no Jesus and the gospel. But what happened? One day, he understood Jesus and the gospel. 
And it changed everything. He read every text differently. Instead of overseeing the killing of Christians, he was willing to give his life for the sake of the spread of the gospel. He could say to me, for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. What happened? He started reading the whole Bible, not as if it was about him, but as if it was about Jesus, because it is. You see, that is what we have to understand. That is where our power comes from. As we think about the world mission and reaching places in the world right now that are closed to the gospel, it says, do not come here. We will kill you if you preach the gospel here. How in the world do we have the courage to go? Not because we just sort of work up some natural courage. None of us have that. If it's left up to that, we'll never go. How do we do it? Because we know that God has won the victory in the person of Jesus Christ, the man from Bethlehem, the shepherd king anointed by the Spirit who defeated the enemy of God. And we know that because he has defeated the enemy of God, we can jump up and we can rush the world with the gospel because we are secured now and forever. The champion has been defeated by our champion now and forever. And he and he alone is both Lord and Christ. And we will sing for all eternity that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That's where our courage comes from. It comes through Jesus. What's at stake with this sort of understanding is the gospel, the world mission. What's at stake with this is everything. Now you may be here tonight. And you've just read the Bible. And you've sort of said, you know, it talks about being this and being good and being righteous. And I know I'm not that. And and I don't understand this Christian thing. I guess there are just a bunch of people who, who try to be, forget about it. Let me introduce us to you. Weak, sinful, flawed, not noble not wise. Glad to meet you. That's our resume. Because our testimony isn't about us. Our testimony is that the Lord has provided a deliverer and we believe he has defeated the enemy and he will deliver us now and forever. And by the way, you can come on board too. If you're here today and you don't know where you stand in relation to Christ, would you throw yourself on the mercy of the one who died for sinners, who offers the forgiveness of your sins, who offers victory over your sins and victory over the evil one now and forever? Would you flee to him? Many people are confused about what Christianity is and about what our message is because the church has preached such a watered-down gospel and just thrown out moralistic statements as if the gospel isn't true. But hear me tonight. Everything is about what God has provided in the person of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross, it was not failure, it was victory, and it was vindicated by an empty tomb. Flee to him. Trust in him. And I also know this. I know it's so easy for the followers of Christ 
to just sort of lose our way. We believe the gospel in the beginning, but then we sort of start living without the gospel. Your only hope today is the gospel. Your only hope a zillion years in eternity is the gospel. Aren't you glad that the Bible's not all about you? If it were, you'd be doomed. And so would I. No, it's all about Jesus. And because that's true, you have hope. And so do I. Let's pray.